Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. What are your thoughts on the past 100 years of genetics? It's a big question, but it's one worth considering as the Genetic Society celebrates its centenary. It's also, essentially, the focus of the latest issue of Heredity. For this edition of the journal, past presidents of the Genetic Society were basically asked to write something interesting on genetics, and that's exactly what they did. Sitting somewhere between opinion pieces, creative writing, and proper reviews, these articles are some of the most insightful, thought-provoking, and entertaining I have read in a really long time. And in this episode of the Heredity Podcast, we're going to be discussing the article written by the current president of the Genetic Society, Professor Lawrence Hurst. His review is called A Century of Bias in Genetics and Evolution, and it may challenge the way you look at the transmission of both genes and ideas within the field of genetics. But more than that, Lawrence also shares the story of how he unexpectedly became a geneticist in the first place, his eye-opening discovery in an old article from an almost unheard of journal, his hopes for the next 100 years of genetics research, and how he thinks genetics and evolution teaching in schools could be improved. It's a fascinating discussion, so let's dive right into it. I'm Lawrence Hurst. I have several hats. I'm a professor of evolutionary genetics at the University of Bath. I'm the director of the Milner Centre for Evolution, also at the University of Bath, and I'm currently the president of the Genetic Society. And as you mentioned there, you are very successful in the field of genetics now. But in the piece that we're going to discuss in a minute, it doesn't sound as though you were always enthused by it. So how did you first get into the field? Well, yes. So, so the not always enthused by it is right. I think I was taught genetics in a rather old-fashioned, possibly rather dusty manner, you might say, with Punnett squares and dihybrid crosses, etc., etc. And while mathematically, you know, nice and pleasant and interesting, I'd never found it quite as gripping as many other subjects. But I guess uh, one of the first eye-openers, I remember at university being taught about uniparental inheritance of organelles and scratching my head thinking that's really interesting. So if you have something like Chlamydomonas, two cells the same size, they get together, but still one of the two sets of organelles gets destroyed. Why do that? So I guess the first way I really got into genetics was by trying to think about paradoxes like that, things that didn't obviously make sense, whereas something like the Punnett Square always made sense in so much as I was simply taught it well. But uh, when I asked my lecturers, you know, why is it that organelles are uniparentally inherited? They sort of scratched their heads and told me they know that they are uniparentally inherited typically, but they couldn't actually tell me why. And it turns out that was a problem that sort of then stayed with me and bugged me for an awfully long time. So I guess I got into it from a slightly strange route by looking at questions that I just found really intriguing and that didn't make sense and actually at first sight don't make sense. Yeah, I think that will be familiar to many people. But you kind of mentioned a minute ago that you are the president of the Genetic Society and that's kind of the topic of this special issue of Heredity. So maybe you could just kind of give a quick plug for the Genetic Society and tell us what it is, what it does and how you've enjoyed your membership. So the Genetic Society is 100 years old this year. So it was founded in 1919 by Edith Saunders and William Bateson. In the early days, there was just a handful of members in the low tens. Now there's over 2,000 and would be the central society for genetics within the UK. And our primary function is supporting our members, and that's support at many different levels. So we organize conferences. We're very good, I think, at supporting early career researchers. So there are fieldwork grants, communicating science workshops. For specialist sub-communities within genetics, we sponsor meetings like fly meetings and PopGen, the population genetic group meeting that happens every year. I guess we are the lifeblood of British genetics and long may it rain. Yeah, for sure. I have benefited from many of those things you just mentioned and happily so. And I guess the sort of big question from our end is before this, have you actually published in Heredity before? 
Yes, I did several times. Nice. Yes, one of my fairly old papers I published on why Y chromosomes in mammals should have genes that promote nutrient acquisition in embryos. Oh, exciting. So that obviously is a research paper, but in this special issue, your article is a bit more thoughtful and more opinion-based, um, and it's called A Century of Bias in Genetics and Evolution, which is quite a tantalising title. So what is the main idea in this? So this article is one of several written by past presidents of the Genetic Society, just under a brief to say something interesting. And so I thought, given that it's the centenary, I'd say something about how our focus in evolution and genetics has changed over a hundred years, but also with a sideways view to looking at how scientists and opinions have changed over that time as well. So ostensibly, the article is about how it was that Mendelian segregation came to be important in the early days of population genetics under the assumption that it wasn't biased. And of course, that's the assumption that goes into the Punnett square. Those four boxes on the simplest Punnett square have equal probabilities, but it assumes that segregation is fair in a heterozygote. So half the successful gametes in a heterozygote have one allele, the other half have the other. And that was really important because that then underpins Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium ratios. And it's under those circumstances that you get a very strange result. And the strange result is that if you have a transmission like that, then allele frequencies do not change. Hardy-Weinberg also says the genotype frequencies don't change as well after one generation. So if nothing happens, nothing happens. Now that's important because historically it was what gave rise to the notion that actually Darwinian selection doesn't have to fight against the mode of inheritance. So one of the reasons people objected to the notion of natural selection is because if you assume blending inheritance, selection has to fight the mode of inheritance. With Mendelian inheritance and this maintenance of variation, there is no pressure for selection to have to fight against the mode of inheritance. So that was an important insight in the early days, and it argued that you could free up natural selection to just be working on individuals. In a sense, the genetics get taken out of the system so long as it's Mendelian. Now, what that's turned into now is, yes, we assume that it's the default for very good reasons. But beyond that, there's a lot of focus now on the possibility and the consequences of transmission not being Mendelian. So there you might be thinking about segregation distorters or things like that. But I particularly am interested in more subtle processes like bias gene conversion, which now seem to be the correct explanation, or at least so we think at the moment, for the existence of the so-called isochore structures in human and mammalian genomes more generally. So the isochores are these blocks of high GC and then low GC content and high GC. So it's a real blocky structure within the genome. And what we know about in mammals is that bias gene conversion operates through meiosis. And when you have the heteroduplex, so one strand meets the opposite strand from the opposite chromosome, so to speak, you will get mismatches. And if there's a GCAT mismatch, we think it gets resolved more in the favor of the GC. So if you had a G against a T, we'd more commonly replace the T with the C. And one consequence of that we now think is so-called isochores. But it has an interesting consequence. You don't get Mendelian segregation. You get non-Mendelian segregation, you get a transmission bias. So now I think we're at an interesting position where we're very interested in the exceptions to Mendelism, whereas before 100 years ago, we were more interested in Mendelism being the rule. It had only just been discovered, and there were some curious exceptions, and people weren't sure in the early days. But Bateson was, of course, very important in the establishment of Mendelism as being very much the rule. But against that backdrop, 
what you see also in this interesting history is exposure of a lot of underlying other biases. So I think, for example, on a technical end, if something like bias gene conversion is a real problem, then we may be up against technical biases to try and resolve it. So in yeast, we see an incredibly weak bias. So from 100,000 GCAT mismatches in meiosis, we calculated a bias of 50.03, which wasn't significantly different from 50-50, even with 100,000 sample size. So if there really is a bias, then it must be incredibly weak. And so we're up against technical biases to work out whether we can really resolve these biases. But there are, there are other biases that I was looking at as well. So when you look at Fleming Jenkin, for example, and his objection to Darwinism in the 19th century, it is more or less equivalent to the argument that I was giving before that with blending inheritance, selection's got a problem. But his way of arguing that was just clearly racist. <laughs> A bit of a problem with some old geneticists. <laughs> I mean, these days he would just simply be called the white supremacist. Um, and so it's it's interesting to see how that history then exposes that sort of biases. But there are also biases in how best to try and understand evolution. Why do some people have a bias against evolution? How could you overcome those sort of cognitive biases? So I actually discuss the possibility of actually teaching the importance of transmission biases and the lack of transmission biases in the early history is actually a way to overcome cognitive biases that some people face when trying to learn about evolution. In no small part, because it argues it down to the level of DNA, and people find it much easier to think about evolution when thinking about DNA, when you actually see the physical manifestation of what an allele is and how they get transmitted, and how that transmission is usually fair, and then you see that evolution is then just an inevitable consequence of this, then that can help overcome some other biases. So I was also playing with the idea of bias more generally, not just simply transmission biases, but these other biases as well. Yeah, no, it's a very, very interesting article. And you kind of just mentioned there one of the interesting historical stories, probably not our proudest one. But one thing I do love about this article is that there are lots of very interesting historical perspectives. And I kind of wonder if there was a favorite story you had from the days of genetics past. Oh, there's a good question. Actually, I think there's a bias I didn't mention that I think is very important. So when people were rediscovering this notion of transmission bias, there's a lovely paper by a Swedish cytogeneticist called Gunnar Östergren from 1945, where he looks at what we would now call B chromosomes. He calls them parasitic fragments. And he lays out the logic of why a chromosome or an allele with bias transmission could spread even if it's really, really bad for you, and how that invasion would then create the context for suppressors, etc., etc. And that, as far as I can see, is by far the best and the clearest early explanation of what we have now called a selfish genetic element. There were early sort of intimations like it. So Haldane has an idea similar to it. Gershenson has an idea similar to it, but he ends up a little bit confused. So the first really, really clear understanding is this 1945 paper. But then later on, there's a, there's a series of papers on myotic drive in a number of animals. And often what you find is that when people are citing the early history of selfish genetic elements and the like, they will cite those papers published in places like American Naturalist and Genetics, for example, and not this Ustergren paper. And many years ago, I did a review of self-genetic elements and the history of, of thought about them. And I remember having this particular paper, which I hadn't heard of by Ustergren, pointed out by one of my co-authors, who, 
incidentally, also was Swedish. This was Bengt Bengtsson. And I just remember being utterly, utterly embarrassed. I thought I knew this literature very well. And I tracked back all the references I could find. And I've been left thinking that the first really clear statements were Standler and Novitski from the, the 1950s. And Banks said, no, no, you have to read this Swedish cited geneticist, Gunnar Ostergren. I thought, who? And it was published in an incredibly remote journal. So Bank printed out a, a copy for me. And I just remember being utterly, utterly embarrassed that I did not know this paper because it is so lucid and so clear. But there are biases in there. And I don't know if it's because he just published somewhere that's very poorly read. But as far as I can see, that paper lay dormant. It was known about in the plant B chromosome literature. It got discussed a bit. But it never really made a major league breakthrough until about the 1980s. And so there were these two parallel literatures going on. One very, very limited because it was a Swedish cited geneticist publishing in a minor journal versus more or less exactly the same insights published later with no acknowledgement of this paper. And they develop as two completely independent traditions. And it just made me, I remember thinking at the time, it just made me re-examine all my prejudices. I just thought because it had been published in this journal, no one had ever cited it. It must be, you know, my Swedish friend trying to big up his Swedish mate, so to speak. And it wasn't. It's just an absolutely brilliant paper. And if you really want to see a lucid argument for selfish genetic elements, read Ostergren from 1945. It's just brilliant. And we really should have cited it more. I feel that's probably quite common with lots of papers published in smaller journals where they're really good quality, but they just get overlooked. Is it the journal? Is it the person? I don't know. But it, it, it can't help that it was in a remote journal. I mean, Mendel, of course, had the same problem. Uh, and that takes us back to the early history of the genetic society, because Mendel was so overlooked, not only because he published in this remarkably remote journal, but it was also in German. And it took Bateson to commission the first English translation of it. And that's, in part, what then gives rise to the genetic society itself. So, yes, minor journals can contain great ideas, but unless they get read, those ideas can get lost. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, Heredity is one of those journals publishing some really great ideas. And you kind of just mentioned there the origins of the society, and this article is kind of looking at the past 100 years. So I guess it's kind of a nice time to maybe think about where you see the field of genetics heading in, say, the next 50 to 100 years. I just think it's just the most amazing time to be a geneticist. It doesn't take a big brain to work out where we're going is into a, and we're already there, is into a domain of massive data. I mean, if, if you think it was several billion dollars and what, all but 15 years, 13 years to sequence the first human genome, and now you can sequence a human genome for sub a thousand dollars and you do it effectively in real time. And now the rate limiting step is being able to analyze the data that's coming out. So I, I think our rate limiting step is going to be having good ideas about all of this data. But I, I would make an appeal also, I think, to what you might call an age of playful genetics, I guess. So I think the joy of having really brilliant data like that at relatively cheap and available prices is that we should be entering an age in which people can be really, really playful in the sort of questions that they ask. Just go in and, and ask and have fun. And if it doesn't work out well, so be it. I think there is a a notion that you should just trust good intelligent scientists to be playful, to go out and come up with interesting things. And yeah. I think that rather goes against the mould for a lot of granting agencies these days who more or less want you to have done the grant before um, they're prepared to even give you the money, so to speak. Um, just take good people, trust them, 
give them money, get them to go and, and do good, interesting stuff, but trust them to define what is interesting and let them be playful. So I, th- I would hope we're entering an age of playful science. Yeah, no, I very much hope you're correct. So I only have one last question, and it kind of plays a bit off of your playful genetics thinking. So at the start, you kind of mentioned you weren't the most interested in genetics, partially because of the way it was taught, and you actually finished this article in The Special Issue by talking about secondary education of evolution, of genetics. So I wonder if you had any sort of thoughts that you might share with someone who is young and maybe is interested in biology, but isn't entirely sure if genetics is the field that they want to specialize on. What might you say to them to encourage them that actually genetics is a field that they should be paying attention to? Oh, excellent question. First, I've talked to their teachers. So we did a massive randomized control trial to work out what the best way to teach evolution is in secondary schools to GCSE students. And the answer is really, really good. It's you teach genetics before you teach evolution. Believe it or not, in the UK syllabuses at the moment, those two subjects are unconnected. (laughs) Really? I know, it's amazing. But couple them together, put the genetics first, and it's not only was the only way that the foundation classes both got genetics and evolution, but you generally see a 5 to 10% increase in understanding of evolution by doing it in that order at no cost to the genetics understanding. In fact, the genetics understanding improves that way. So that's what I'll tell the teachers. They, however, are constrained by the syllabus, which unfortunately I do think rather underwhelms many of the students. So what would I tell them? I'd tell them that you are currently sitting at the start of the second industrial revolution because we can sequence your DNA so fast and so well these days. What we're going to be able to say in just 10 years time and the sorts of analyses that we can do in 10 years time are just out of the imagination of what we thought we could do just 20 years ago. If you're interested in Medicine, medicine will get transformed by this. If you're interested in conservation, conservation is going to get transformed by this. If you're interested in population genetics, that is being transformed by this. There's no area of biology that isn't going to be touched by the second industrial revolution, which is the genomic revolution. How is that not an exciting field to be in? That's a very good answer. Who could not be excited by that? And I guess that's actually me out of questions. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us on the Heredity Podcast and sharing your thoughts on the genetic society and the past 100 years of genetics. My pleasure. and looking forward to the next 100 years. That was Lawrence Hurst, a professor at the University of Bath, the director of the Milner Centre for Evolution, and the current GenSoc president. I hope you enjoyed hearing his thoughts as much as I did. But if you want to get the most from his article, you really are going to have to go and give it a read yourself. You can find A Century of Bias in Genetics and Evolution in the Heredity Special Issue, which is available now on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And that issue will keep you entertained for a really long time, as each article is going to delight you, challenge you, and leave you pondering the big ideas in genetics for a lot longer than the word count might imply. In the next episode, we're going to continue our exploration of this special issue with Professor Enrico Cohen from the John Innes Centre, as we discuss the evolution of geneticists themselves and the art of storytelling and communicating science and the rise of human intelligence. But until then, enjoy reading the special issue and have a playful few weeks. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.